Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week, after the riots in France, we're going to be talking about French politics and French history. And to help us give a flavour of what's actually going on in France, we're going to speak to the great John Litchfield, who's live from Normandy. John was Paris correspondent for The Independent for 20 years and is now a regular contributor for Unheard. And the question we're going to be talking about today is what makes French politics different and why? The French government has said it is considering all options, including declaring a state of emergency after a third night of escalating violence and rioting in cities and towns across France. Hundreds of police were injured last night and more than 900 people arrested. Ministers asked for public transport across France tonight to be suspended and some major events have been cancelled as the government tries to stop scenes like this taking place for the fourth night running. The protest began in a Paris suburb on Tuesday when a police officer shot dead a 17-year-old boy of North African descent during a traffic stop in Nanterre. Footage of the shooting was posted online. So that was a news clip of the of the riots that followed the shooting of a teenager on the outskirts of Paris. Um, and what we find interesting is that like, these are obviously not the first riots that have happened in France over the past 20 years or so. There have been an awful lot. If you think about the pension protests that happened earlier this year, but also in 2019, you had the Gilets Jaunes in 2018. Before that, you also had this like a period of quite extraordinary terrorist violence, really horrible stuff that gripped France for quite a period of time. And the period of time that we're going to be talking about today, Helen, or certainly in this first half, goes back to 2005 and the first really violent national uh, riots that that gripped France under Jacques Chirac. Uh, and they that followed the deaths of two boys who were running away from police. Uh, so there's quite a few similarities to the riots that have just happened in Paris, uh, across the country, I should say. So, I mean, how do you... It, 
it's 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 hard to understand this, isn't it? Because in some ways, I look at France and I think it is an extraordinarily successful country, uh, an effective state, great public services, um, a, an economy that's actually thriving now. Did very well during the during the pandemic in lots of respects. Um, has a growing population, unlike say uh, Germany, and it has the lowest unemployment rate that it's had in well in in decades as far as i know so in some senses you think france feels very healthy like why is why is this happening and why does it continue to happen the, the most recent riots um, they were in some ways similar to the 2005 riots which i also i also covered um in the sense that they they went to pretty well every large town medium-sized town in the country or at least the sort of uh, multiracial suburbs of, of those towns um, which hadn't happened before. I mean, there had, as you said, been quite serious riots, almost always with the same cause of an incident involving a young uh, person of African or North African origin being killed by police. There were similar incidents in the 80s and 90s as well. But they tended to be more confined to the area in which the incident happened. Um, 2005 spread around the country over three weeks. This time it all spread around the country over a day or two days, much more rapid in a sense, it was the first 21st century riot, you know, that was not only was it very much driven and, and moved around the country by um, by mobile phones, even drones were used by the rioters in some places to, um, to spot what the police were up to. It was more violent than 2005. It reached places 2005 didn't reach, into the cities, into the prosperous cities like Paris and, and Toulouse and Strasbourg, into smaller towns that hadn't been touched in 2005, partly because the the sort of uh, the communities from the the, the banlieue, the suburbs of the big towns, have been somewhat moved out into those smaller towns in recent years in attempts to sort of uh, reduce the problems or scatter the problems. And you know that was never been popular, and it'll be even less popular now that it's brought to people in those towns see it, the same kind of violence that exists in the big cities into the smaller uh, rural towns, which hadn't known that kind of violence before. What do you think's going on? John, in terms of the relationship or between the French state and these rights, and particularly the police, because one thing that I'm struck by is this time is that the language that the police unions were using in describing the way that they were approaching the policing problem, talking about, I think, two of the police unions talked about savage hordes and considering themselves at war. I mean, this is you know, quite extraordinarily, extraordinary language. How much do you think that actually there's something that's quite different about the relationship between policing the French state uh, and its minority um, population, its Muslim minority population compared to other European countries? I think there's there's a French police problem, uh, full stop. I don't think it's just to do with uh, policing of minorities um, and of the multiracial suburbs. Uh, you know, you saw during the Gilets Jaunes movement that uh, police are pretty uh, not pretty ready to be fairly brutal with, with anyone if, if they feel the need. I think that, that it goes back partly to the fact that I think the police in France is a national force. In fact, it's two national forces. There's a national police force Police Nationale, which essentially polices all the big towns and cities, and then there's the Gendarmerie, which is technically part of the army, which is a paramilitary force which essentially polices rural areas and small towns. Both of them are national forces. They don't often the policemen in a certain area are not from that area. 
they're sent in and they're often felt even by you know well-off white people in the in rural france like where i live they regard the gendarmerie almost as a kind of occupying force you don't know any gendarmes yes absolutely and they are like a bit of an occupying force because they have their own little barracks on the edge of each town they don't mix much with local people they often they try to change this now but essentially the gendarme here in normandy would probably be from the south or from somewhere else you know they, they tend not to have people in the area uh, where they serve uh, i think that is beginning to change but that's been the pattern so you have a sense of it almost a kind of colonial force policing france within france and so you know the police force is there to protect the government and the state rather than serve the people in a way now not all policemen take that view not all gendarmes take that view you know it isn't a monolithic thing that uh, you know when i've covered rights i've been amazed by how how patient and how uh, non-violent some of the police you see are and certainly going back in my time of covering rights in france there was much more tendency or more direct tendency for police just to beat people over the head very early uh, in the old days than there is now. So it's, you know, it's a complicated situation, but it goes back, I think, to that, that the, the police uh, protect the state, they protect the government, and then the government has therefore great difficulty in facing up to the fact that there are real problems with the police in terms of uh, violence towards minorities and towards other problems as well. But essentially, the relationship between the police and especially young people especially but more people than just young people in the in the in the multiracial banlieue and french cities is, is terrible it's awful perhaps it's not worse than what you find in the us or britain but it's very difficult i think for the french any french government however reformist it may think it is to to solve that because you know you've seen it exactly what happened during the present riots that, that it started with what seems to be a, a police atrocity of killing this young man um, for, uh, during the traffic stop. Um, and yet, who did the government need to control the riots that that, um, that um, produced? They needed the police. So one of the reasons why the police unions got so furious was that Macron took the unusual step President Macron took the usual step of criticizing the policeman publicly and saying that, you know, on, on the surface it appeared that, that he'd not obeyed the rules. And this was an, an inexplicable and, and terrible thing that had happened. They even gave a minute silence to the young man in, in the National Assembly. So the police felt that, you know, that justice had been sort of preempted and that, um, the, the, yeah, they felt they felt under attack, and they were under attack, physically under attack as well. That some of the, the a lot of the riots were aimed at police, at police stations, and at the police on the streets, which is a bit different again from two thousand and five as well, where the riots of two thousand and five were not set peace riots in that way. There were wandering groups of kids attacking public buildings, but there were not many actual clashes between police and and and, and the young people on the street. This time, the young people went after police um john can i can i just the way as you were talking there it really made me think that there's a connection go, that runs through all of the different protests and riots that we've been talking about whether it's the you know the, the riots in the banya recently or the gilet jean which was as i understand it was sort of more rural um and a nationwide protest and it and it, it's almost more a reflection of the um, the power structures in in France between the state and ordinary people, and how you how you protest that. Whereas in Britain, you have you know in theory at least you have kind of policing by consent, uh, police being part of the community rather than uh, protecting the uh, the state as you've as you've uh, 
put it uh, just then. Because when I've spoken to people in France over the past week uh, researching this episode, they were they were at pains to distinguish between each of the different uh, protest movements, whether Gilets jaunes or the um, riots from um, ethnic minority groups in France. They thought that they were very different and had very different... Um, causes and should be thought of differently but the way you were describing it makes me think that that we should think we should try and think about them together well you, you they're right and you're right tom in the sense that they are they're all very different things i mean the, the gilet jaune protests were yeah essentially came out of this kind of area where i am now a, a rural rural france and it was about uh, fuel prices it was about a sense which is exaggerated but had some truth in it that rural france had been abandoned and and uh, you know it's it's all its local sources of pride and prosperity had, had gone and uh, from farming to small factories and so on and, and that there was um nothing being done for, for them from the cities which is not actually true but that was the the feeling so that was completely separate from 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 the the barnier rights and, and the uh, the pension the pension reform uh, protests were, were, were different again but you do i think you know it's a very difficult um chicken and egg or poulet of situation really the french state is created as it is i think partly because france has a, a long history of of uh, anger public protest uh, all political issues going very straight to the street uh, right back to the revolution before the revolution maybe and that's still 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 the true and but because you therefore have a kind of very powerful centralized state with a single figure of authority in the president um there is a sort of almost i don't know i've, I've once described it as a sort of teenage attitude to the state that french people have that they sort of not hate the state but they kind of have contempt for the state they sort of criticize the state but at the same time they completely rely on the state to do a lot of things and expect the state to do things to do things for them and if, if things don't go exactly the way they 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 want uh, if the state decides to do something like put the pension age up from 62 to 64 over 10 years which doesn't seem like the most terrible thing that could happen given what's happening in other countries then the whole country comes out in in, in protest on the street so then you therefore you seem to have you have to have a strong straight to, con to control that as well and you need to have a strong police force to control that so it's difficult to know where one starts and the other ends but there is definitely you know there is definitely that different relationship between the pouvoir between power between government and and people in france than exists in pretty well other all other european countries i think um us is different of course again i mean another reason why that is sort of acute in france is that france is very centralized although it does have 10 or 12 regions so they don't have enormous powers you don't have the kind of powers that the the lender have in germany and certainly not that the states have in the u.s so it all comes down to the central state in paris in the end hey it's tom here i just wanted to say how thrilled helen and i are that you've chosen to listen to these times podcast along with tens of thousands of others what you might not know, however, is that over at unheard.com, there's a whole host of content each day spanning politics, culture, ideas and analysis from some of the biggest names in journalism from around the world. Myself, I've written about everything from the war on inflation to the war in Ukraine and have some really big pieces coming up, which I think you're really going to like. There really has been no better time to join us. And by using the promo code THESETIMES, all in caps, when you sign up today at unheard.com 
forward slash join, you'll get three months free. You can't say fairer than that. That's three months free if you use the code these times when you subscribe at unheard.com forward slash join. If we go back to like 2021, there, there were those two letters. The first, I think, from a group of retired soldiers and then the second, including some serving soldiers that was using language that was not entirely dissimilar, really, to this recent language used by the police unions. Again, talking this time about suburban hordes, warning about concessions to Islamists leading to the possibility of of, of civil war. Again, this is pretty dramatic um, language. And obviously, Marine Le Pen, um, before she was running for, for president, or before the actual year when she was running um, for president, was expressing support for this kind of language. How does that fit into the story? I mean, is there a sense in it? Why is it the case? I mean, I suppose it's what I'm trying to ask. Why is it the case that we have this language of, of civil war coming out of bits of the French state itself? Well, that letter was written by a pretty sort of a, a, a small group of, of retired officers um, who were pretty well directly connected to the far right um, and supporters of the far right. And so I wouldn't necessarily say it represented a sort of general view of serving the retired French army or military officers. Um, it certainly represents what a chunk of them feel, but it was a sort of just as the, you know, it was connected to the presidential election. It was partly an electoral stunt, but it does certainly represent, um, you know, a pretty widespread point of view amongst uh, some people of military or ex-military uh, background. The police is a different question, you know, really, because the, 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 like in all things, France is a confusing country. You know, France has, I think, eight different trade union federations, so like eight different TUCs of different political persuasions um, or non. And it's the same with the police. There are four or five different kind of police unions, and some of them extremely radical and far right, um, and use that kind of language all the time. What was striking and and worrying about the letter that you mentioned was that it was actually signed by two of the more moderate police unions, Alliance and the union connected with the, the sort of civil servants union. Uh, so to, for them to use that kind of language, talking about people in, in the banlieue as, yes, savage hordes and as vermin at one stage, was extraordinary. That was far-right language. But then if you look at the polling, it suggests that something like 70% of, of police uh, vote for the far-right in, in France. And why I, When I was chatting to a friend of mine in Paris, um, who's, who's worked for the state for, for a long time, he, he was saying that one of the things that he is concerned about and thinks is behind this tension between the public in France and the state is that you've had this erosion of other um, bodies that would sort of sit in between like the Catholic Church or the Communist Party those sort of once powerful bodies that would act as um, almost almost conservative forces in a way you know he, he was saying that, you know the communist party would represent uh, obviously the working class um in a, in a non-racist way and or, you know would would ensure that its its policies were not racist in a way that um with 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 the erosion of the communist party its supporters drifted over to marine le pen uh, and then, and then the catholic church as well playing a sort of uh, a similar buffering role do you, do you think there's some truth in in that 
Yes, I, I think there is truth in that. And they, they call them in France the core intermediaire, the intermediary bodies. And, you know, I would include the unions in that. that those All those eight trade union federations that I mentioned also used to have a more... Uh, used to be more respected by working people than they are now. I mean, French unions are weird, you know, because they're very powerful, but they have very, very few members. They're like more like political parties than, than unions in some ways, of the kind we think of. Uh, I'm not sure, yes, the Catholic Church, I suppose. Uh, um, Communist Party probably less than unions in, in a way is a significant force in, in that. But political parties generally, I think, Tom, you know, the, the political parties have uh, this you know it's maybe true in other countries as well but the political parties are not the kind of structuring forces that they were in france you know it used to be fairly it was always very confused rather we did there weren't always two big parties like say in britain or in the us but there was always two big families of parties center left and center right you know which were able to sort of come together and, and put forward a uh, strong candidate in there in the presidential election, that has now got completely confused. Uh, Macron uh, has benefited from that. Uh, he also has encouraged and he's, he's pushed it even further than it was. But now you have a situation in which people don't have any real respect for any, any of the political parties. None of them are strong, except possibly uh, Marine Le Pen's or some of us and that. Um, and the country is split in, in a kind of rather jagged way in three ways now. You know, you have a, a very militant left for the most part. You have almost a kind of, um, uh, yeah, you have a very militant left. You have an increasingly hard and far right, which is difficult to distinguish one from the other. What's left of the old goalies movement often comes out and has done in the last few days with, with language which is indistinguishable from that of the pen or of... Um, it's the more her rival on the far right. In fact, Marine Le Pen is, tries to adopt a kind of moderate sort of mother of the nation sort of tone. That's one of her, her strategies at the moment, and less extreme in her language than that of people in the supposed centre right. Um, and then you have the this big broad area in the middle, which is partly from the old socialist centre left. It's partly from the old goalist centre right. Partly the centrist parties that always existed, and Macron is sort of at the head of that at the moment. Can't run again next time, so who's going to continue that in 2027 is uncertain. So, uh, and they're sort of being squeezed on both sides, but it's almost split three ways the country uh, in, in that way. So it's actually, you know, the, the parties that used to maybe channel opinion are, are no longer as strong, no longer, no longer is able to do so. So I'd say that, yes. Um, what your people have been telling you is right, that that is one, one of the issues. But the fact was that France was always a very quarrelsome place, you know, even when you had those things that you had union movements in the fourth, late 40s and 50s in which trains were derailed and people were killed. You know, I mean, it's not this is violence is kind of runs through French political life. I just want to push you on Macron a bit, because is there is a way of telling this story, I think, which would say, look, you know, the French party system was intact in the middle of the last decade. So obviously, Hollande became a very unpopular um, president. But nonetheless, there was a clear centre-right and a clear centre-left. And if you looked at the beginning of the run-up to the 2017 election, the expectation was that a candidate from the centre-right would win the presidency, merely because of Hollande's uh, unpopularity. But instead, M Macron running... In a way, 
you know, he was a strange mixture of running, seems to me, like as a charismatic technocrat populist all somehow at the same time, kind of smashed this party system to win the presidency. And then could we say it's not a coincidence then that actually it's under his presidency that we've just seen the constant, in a way, politics of the street, even though it moves itself around in terms of whether it's you know the gilet jaune, whether it's the recent riots or whether it, it's the, the pension um, strikes. There's been very little period of Macron's presidency after the first year of it and then perhaps the pandemic when there hasn't been politics of the street going on. Are these two things got something to do with each other? No, it's been crisis after crisis, well, and quite extraordinary uh, series of crises. Well, the, 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 where I would quarrel with that, Alan, is that the idea that uh, Macron smashed the party system is not right, I think, that he pushed over something that was about to fall. You know? Because, I mean, essentially, uh, you'd had a system where essentially centre-left presidents were elected, uh, you know, with a kind of leftist message, and then would, they would govern in the centre or to the right, and same with Sarkozy and Chirac, that they were, they were elected with a, a kind of uh, more right-wing message, but then they were governed in the central to the left. And, and so it was almost as if there was kind of the same uh, group of people in power, or the same approach in power, um, whoever got elected. I think that was falling apart. And if you look at the, the, the series of absolute scandals in the, in the centre-right, the, the successor parties to the builders and the centre-right parties, uh, ending up with François Fillon, who was a candidate in 2017, being completely blown out of the race by it emerging that he'd been sort of corruptly claiming expenses on behalf of his wife in Parliament and so on. Now, you know, uh, so, and that was, and also that Sarkozy had sort of, has, has got so many scandals to his name, some of which have not been completely resolved yet, but certainly was breaking all the rules in party funding in the two elections he, he fought. So, you know, that party was ready to blow up and, and did, and the centre-left was ready to blow up for other reasons, because Hollande, you know, as I said, he, he ran quite a quite a radical left campaign in 2012, but certainly didn't govern in that way, and partly because he had an economics minister called Emmanuel Macron who pushed him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And quite successfully, so right, because it's some of the things that Tom was saying uh, earlier about how well the French economy is doing, and I think can be traced back not to the beginning of the of Macron administration, where he, you know, he has done things to sort of free up the labour market and and to um, you know encourage the economy. But a lot of that started under Francois Hollande um, and with Macron as one of his senior ministers. So yeah, it's true. I think that because Macron, you know, people don't know who Macron is. You know, I was speaking to one of my neighbours here the other day who's saying, who is this man? You know, he doesn't understand France. He's a young man. He's not marinated in kind of, you know, all the kinds of things that someone like Chirac was over so many years. We knew who he was. We'd grown up with him here. So they still think of Macron as someone who came on the scene and he's been around now for five years or more, uh, as someone who's kind of... Um, you know, someone they don't really know who he is, that he's he's sort of emerged from nowhere. So, yes, he was. I mean, he ran as a kind of revolutionary in 2017, Macron, but he's not, essentially, in a way, he's a managerial uh, representative of the, of the of that kind of continuous um, politics that I was talking about, where whoever won the centre-right or centre-left, they would pursue the same kind of politics. And Macron, though he's tried to make things work better, and he has in some respects, um, you know, is really a representative of that tradition. He isn't. He isn't a great revolution. He, he pretended he was, uh, and uh, yes, therefore there is. I think it goes back to what we were talking about: the sort of collapse of the people's 
sense of, of allegiance to parties, allegiance to a political point, a, a kind of a mainstream political point of view, or Macron emerging as the great, great sort of uh, figure in the centre, which has grasped the sort of moderate parts of the centre left and the moderate parts of the centre right, and created quite a powerful movement there in the centre for now, has left the, the rest of, of, of the goalists on the right and, and the socialists on the left feeble and, and struggling, but that wasn't just Macron's doing, you know, that he, he exploited it, he took advantage of it, but you, you can't really blame Macron for blowing up the party system. I suppose he's, he's a kind of embodiment of the state, isn't he? You know, and so you, you mentioned about, um, you know, being marinated in, in French history. I think that's what we're going to attempt to do in the, uh, in the next half. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. May 1968, a nation of strikes, of violence, a country paralyzed across its length and breadth. The simmering of unrest amongst its student population rapidly boiled, then boiled over. Citizens from every walk of life, from every class, became involved. Unrest, which had lurked beneath the surface, spilled into the open. France had been brought to its knees by a disenchanted majority who wanted more money, better working conditions, and a shake-up in the social system. Chaos ruled the streets. That was a news clip from the famous 1968 riots in Paris in uh, in the May of that year, which precipitated the fall of uh, Charles de Gaulle the, the, the following the following year after a failed referendum. And I think it's really interesting to go back and see um, the start of the Fifth Republic here, because de Gaulle had created the Fifth Fifth Republic out of the crisis in Algeria only ten years before in 1958, and here so he's he has created the Fifth Republic in a uh, in a in a an atmosphere of violence and intrigue from the uh, French generals, a crisis, uh, almost a civil war with uh, that was happening within metropolitan France, but also with Algeria that was then part of France, and then he he uh, loses his presidency, loses his authority. Um, amid street riots in 1968. So right from the beginning of the French Republic, you have this crisis of um, uh, authority, of street violence, of street protests. So it's sort of embedded in the system. And, and, and I wanted to talk to you about that, John, really, and try and, try and get your perspective on how that has played out over the the, the remainder of the uh, the fifth public all the way all the way up to today. I mean, it's it strikes me that what de Gaulle did was 
he loathed the Fourth Republic and he loathed the Third Republic, those that, that those that came before. He he wanted a stronger presidency. He felt that this was necessary to keep order in France, to keep a grip on it, and to have some kind of national mission um, that he felt you know had collapsed in in uh, in 1940 and then and then in the years after the Second World War, and it's this system that he created, and it's this system that really is is what you were talking about creating this tension between authority um of the presidency this this remarkably strong monarchical presidency and uh and and the public i mean how, how do you see it josh well you know as you say de gaulle created that pattern of um of this for the government governing of the state because he he you know the fourth republic had had I think uh, one prime minister every 10 months on average or something like that, one had lasted only 11 days. Um, it was what we came to think of as Italian-style politics of revolving door governments, uh, which presided over an extraordinary boom in the French economy. I was going to say, say, very successful, wasn't it? A very successful yeah, period. So that is sort of a different question. Even I don't go back that far, so I can't, I can't really give you any very... Specific insights into that, but it's a fact that you know, partly because of the coming of, of the uh, common market, partly because of just the fact that I think Europe was recovering very, very strongly from from, from the disaster of the Second World War. That, that France had a what they call the Trente Glorieuse, forty-five and seventy-five, um, a lot of which coincided with the, the sort of chaotic politically forced republic. De Gaulle didn't see it that way. Obviously, no, he, he had thought in nineteen. 45, that there ought to be a strong presidential system. He left politics because that was, you know, he didn't want the parties to take over again. He saw the parties as kind of just a source of of, of, of confusion and a source of, of chaos rather than of control. And he, he wanted to have a, a strong uh, central uh, government and a strong presidency. And that's what essentially he finally imposed in the period from 58 to 62. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you know, and that's that is not in a way. It's into what's happened in the last year or so before the present lights. That the, it, it was interesting that um, Macron to get through the the um, to get through the pension reform used some of the extreme powers that were given to the presidency by De Gaulle in that period, fifty eight to sixty two. Because normally speaking, the constitution is not much different from that of the Fourth Republic. You know, the Parliament is still the powerful force that it was, and and when you don't have um, a president with the same colour as the Parliament, as we saw in the periods of, of co- um, cohabitation that have been on the, under the Fifth Republic, then it's it is the Prime Minister and the Parliament who become strong again. But so as to force through the pension reform, Macron used this uh, extraordinary power, that, uh, one of the several extraordinary powers that de Gaulle gave um, the executive and, and the president, the Article 493 power to essentially push through a piece of legislation and say, well, if you don't like that, chums, you can vote as uh, you can vote um, the, part of the government down, and uh, you have a have a confidence vote or, or a, a um, and if the confidence vote doesn't uh, bring down the government then the legislation is passed um, so you know it's legal it's perfectly legal it's perfectly constitutional but many people in France many young people in France I don't think they were aware that existed and they were outraged to find that the president could essentially batter something through the parliament in that way it's happened many times all governments have used it ever since it was introduced but it somehow has caused a sort of 
amongst young people a sense that, you know, what kind of government do we have in this country? How democratic is it really if, if this can happen? And yet I don't feel that there is a strong uh, current of opinion, certainly not amongst the, the main political parties, that the system, well, the only, the only there's an exception to this, that the system should be changed back towards a parliamentary system. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the, the leader of the radical left, has always believed there should be a sixth republic. It should go back to uh, a parliament-run system, but I think he is... He is uh, alone in thinking that. I think uh, Marine Le Pen wants to be president. I think uh, all the potential successors to Macron in the centre certainly want, want to keep that system sort of the goalist because they're sort of, you know, they still worship at the shrine of de Gaulle. So uh, not all people on the left would want to abolish the presidential system either, I think. It's, it is very... Um, entrenched in the, in the French way of seeing things. And, uh, you know, I, as I said before, it's difficult to know. It, it's created in a way, it was created by de Gaulle in, it, because he didn't couldn't trust the French with government, maybe, because he felt the French were um, a people who would always be querulous and always sort of disputing things, on whether in Parliament or on the street. Therefore, you needed to have a strong central government with a strong uh, figure at the top. Um, so does that therefore now create the sort of violence and, and opposition and the sense of um, uh, anger about the state? You know, it is difficult to know which one causes the other. I think you, you just, you know, you, it is something that's endemic in French history. Maybe therefore you do need to have a strong central power to control France. France is a very, there isn't such a thing as France in a way. You know, it is such a divided country, both in terms of not just ethnically, but um, in, in terms of uh, just the, the geographical extent of it, you know, the, the, the attitudes in, in the south and those in the north and here in Normandy or Brittany in the east are very different. Peoples are very different. And so, you know, it is a kind of, it's a, it's much more of a, a um, fragmented country, naturally fragmented country than even Britain in some ways. And therefore you need to have it, people would argue, you need to have a very strong central power to keep it together. Can I just ask you, John, on this issue of the relationship between the political instability and the economic success? Because I think that this is quite revealing in the sense that in a way that you have this period which there's a certain nostalgia about now, even with the better French economic performance in the in the last few years, comparatively the, the 30 glorious years, yet that period runs over the end of the Fourth Republic, uh, the creation of the Fifth Republic, essentially de Gaulle, as we talked about in a previous episode, coming to power essentially in a coup, then being threatened by coups from the military himself, leaving power in the way in which he did in, um, in 1969. But I think de Gaulle would not be someone who was surprised by the fact that there was no necessary relationship between the relative economic success and the political stability, the political order, because he would have said the purpose of the state is not economic growth. It's not maximising employment. There's, a, there's much more grandeur, particularly to the French state, than that, that the state, the French state, was the vehicle of a French nationhood mm. uh, in some sense. How much now then do you think that what's happened since the 70s and the fact that now it, it seems less possible to structure party competition is to do with the fragmentation of French nationhood since then and the difficulty of like working out in the way in which de Gaulle did of how to project French power into the world. Yes, um, fragmentation of French nation. It's, it's always been a very fragmented country. I say, I, I think that you have a situation of 
large-scale immigration from North Africa and Africa, and they're all, France is an immigrant country, you know, there was huge Spanish and Italian, Eastern European immigration into France between the wars and after after the Second World War, uh, which, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't um, absorbed that easily, but gradually was finally absorbed, and you get many sort of surnames in France that reflect that. Uh, the, the the North African and African uh, emigration, Muslim immigration, if you like, has not been absorbed. And, you know, whose fault of that is that the French rejection of, of the incomers or the incomers' refusal to sort of um, accept themselves as French or see themselves as French or behave as French, you know, that's what the argument's been going on over the last week or so since the riots. It's kind of a very sharply divided argument in French politics about that going on now. Um, so yes, in a sense, French sense of, of, of nationhood has been has been ch- challenged by that. Um, also, you could argue the European Union. You know, I mean, France is quite a Eurosceptic country. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of people in France who, who think that the power has been taken away too much from from France and from Paris and, and to Brussels, and that you know it's no use voting in governments anymore because the decisions are not made here. Very kind of UKIP sort of arguments you hear in, in France of that kind. And, you know, there's an element of truth in them, you know, but uh, uh, you, you can still that you can now argue that France has benefited enormously from being in, in the European Union, still benefits enormously, and therefore that is the price that you pay and that, the, you know, there is a democratic control of the European Union, which which France is, is strongly strongly part of. But uh, there, so possibly that has, has eroded that sense of nationhood as well. Um, it, it, it is, you know, it is. I think also that there has been this kind of collapse of of a single or even the the, the centre left, centre right dichotomy which controlled France for so long was, I think, important in giving a sense that you know, things there was an alternate. Uh, there were alternate governments which were possible and yet remains a sort of core French in some way. And that has kind of broken apart now in a way that leaves the country, I think, uh, with kind of rather difficult choices in the next few years, even if 2027 election doesn't prove to be as difficult as all that, even beyond that, it's going to continue. I don't see, I don't see that, that breakup of the, of the, of the left-right pattern uh, being healed before long. You know, I think it's going to remain a very, um, I mean, if, if you can imagine it, it's like, it's almost like as if it, it, in Britain, there was, there was one, one part of the country that was Corbynite, there was another part that was sort of Ukipite, and then there was a central section, which is, which is kind of the, the, the sort of, um, the, the moderate Tories and, and the moderate left in, in one very uneasy uh, union under, under, under Macron, and how that resolves itself and how you resolve all France's problems through that kind of confusion is, I think, the, 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 the big problem looking ahead. I just want to go back then to this idea then like a French citizenship in this respect, because as you said, actually, a lot of French history post the, the revolution is very assimilationist. It's like anybody can become a French citizen to be a french citizen is in some sense to believe in the be committed to the ideals of the revolution i mean yeah even though obviously there's a part of france where that that the the relationship particularly catholic france where the relationship to that is a lot more complicated and you might say de gaulle was trying to absorb a bit of catholic history back into that french idea of um citizenship and i think you could then say that you you might expect that 
uh, ideal of citizenship to come in difficulty from the 70s once the 30 glorious years economically came to an end and the economic problems were much more um, difficult. And so there became a, a gap between the ideals and the economic um, realities. But where do you think then that leaves the idea of French citizenship in the present context of France's Muslim minority? Because obviously there is a take, I'm not saying it's necessarily a right take, which would say that there's something that's quite distinctive about French politics in the relationship between religion and politics, and that that's got something to do then with the particular political context in which the most recent riots have taken place. Yeah, um, I mean, yes, uh, the, 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 I think it was 1905, the law was passed in which the, the, the state was declared to be um, a lay state, uh, um, a secular state, uh, which didn't mean religion was kind of discouraged or, or oppressed or in any way that the idea was the state would be sent completely outside or, or religions would, would allow and uh, protect all, all religions. Um, which was not to the taste of the Catholic Church at the time. It's the fact that all churches in France are owned by the state, for instance, um, and therefore the church, the state has to kind of prop them up, and it's the state has to rebuild Notre Dame after it burned down, not the church. So it benefits the church in some ways. But, uh, you know, that was at a time when, in a sense, that there was enormous anti-Semitism in France. As you, you know, this, it was a, was roughly at the time of the Dreyfus case and all of that. So the issue then was, could you could you absorb uh, this large number of the Jewish people that had come into France? Some of them have long been there for a long time. But, uh, so, you know, that state that was created um, then, the, the idea of a lay second state, has been challenged uh, in recent years by some people in in the Muslim minority in France because they essentially believe that um, in, that it's been challenged. Well, you could say which which it's, it's challenged in some way. It's it's the it's the it's the lay state that's challenged them. I mean, it, it, there was a law passed under Chirac, as you know, to to say that kids cannot wear. Headscarves to school, and in there you couldn't wear crucifixes or kippahs either. Any religious um, symbol was not allowed in a, in, a, in a state school, and there had been pressure for other kinds of controls over Muslim forms of uh, dress uh, as well. So yeah, there, there is, I think that there is a. I think Jewish people in France have accepted that secular state. I think it's true that there's a radical element of Islamic feeling in France that doesn't accept that. Um, how powerful that is and how much of a threat it is to France. Well, I mean, if you may ask him the same question a few years ago at the time of Charlie Hebdo, the trustee, and the time of the attack on, on the Bataclan and so on, you'd have said that was the, the maybe the real issue out in the Bonnier. But if you, you know, if you talk to kids in the Bonnier, is that a big issue for them? Yes, Muslim identity is a sense of an issue for them, but not, I think, the idea of, of secular state. I mean, it's, you know, that their gripes with the state are different. They're not religious in that way. There's nothing religious particularly about these riots except the sense of identity of, of the kids in the Bonnier you know, have a sort of sense of separate identity because they feel they're rejected because they're Muslim and therefore they, they feel that that is their, their identity whether they like it or not. But I don't think it's, you know, this can be, that those riots a week or so ago can be described as religious riots or political riots even really. They're, you know, totally, it's very difficult to, to define what they were. An explosion of anger, a sense that, you know, Almost a sort of uh, gang warfare, really, of of the, of the kids in the, in the Bonnier, their sense of identity. Not all of them, 
is is anti-police and therefore if the police do something to one of ours we we, we do something to them we do something to the state there seems to be a, a tension a particular tension uh, as i understand it between um uh, french algerian kids and uh, the french state that is that is it's more intense than say between the tunisian uh, french uh, children or or um or, or, or the immigrants from, say, West Africa, um, that the, there is a particular issue um, and resentment work going both ways uh, in France, um, and that and that obviously has its roots in in that particular sort of vi- particularly violent as well uh, history of uh, of uh, of the Algerian War. You know, I, I mean, I. I've spent a lot of time in in the Bonnier over the years and talking to kids of all, all different kinds. And um, yeah, I don't know that the Algerians have. A, I think there is a particular history between Algeria and France, obviously. Um, and I think it makes a difference to some of the older Algerian people. I'm not sure that the kids, um, the Algerian kids, it makes a difference. I think one of the odd things about the Bonnier, from our from looking at it from those kind of American or British perspective is that they are genuinely multiracial in a strange sort of way. You know, if you meet a gang of kids in the Bonnier, there's often two or three of Algerian, Russian, Moroccan, Tunisian, maybe a Greek thrown in, a Turk, uh, even maybe a, a one white kid. You know, and lots of more, more and more kids of African origin now as well, and their sense of identity their city, you know, their sort of housing estate or their bonnier, and they, if they're not fighting the police in the right like last week, they're fighting the kids from the next bonnier and often killing each other as well. Um, so they, it isn't, you know, I don't think there's a strong, it, when football's on, you know, then all the Algerians, kids of Algerian origin come out with Algerian flags and that's their identity, that's their team, and the same with the Moroccans or, or the Tunisians. So then they fall back into that ethnic identity but i think in that you know there isn't in their, what they're doing from every day there isn't a sort of gang of kids and it's not a moroccan gang it doesn't work that way not in the french bonnier where does this go john french politics in the context of the fact that macron can't run for office again and yet that there's still you know quite a number of years of his presidency left most of which has been um it's coexisted in one way or another, as we've been talking about with the politics uh, of the the street. When we throw in the fact that the centre left and the centre right don't look like they can recover as parties, at least in an institutional form, and that the left, as you've been saying, has been moving further to the the uh, left around um, Melanchon, and then the fact that we still got the um, Le Pen um, in play, what kind of political contest around what kinds of conflicts in a way can the French presidential election structure next time? Because it seems the thing that's kind of run through quite a lot of what we've been talking about is the difficulty now that French politics has in kind of structuring a conflict that's organised between competing interests. Country that likes to kick out governments at every opportunity it gets, and although Mitterrand was re-elected, he was only re-elected having having lost an intermediate parliamentary election. Same with uh, Chirac in in two thousand and two, but then also only re-elected because 
he was end up, ended up against Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie uh, uh, Sarkozy, was kicked out after one uh, term of office, and then Hollande after one term of office. So it was an extraordinary exploit, in a way, for Macron to be re-elected uh, last year, as he was. So, you know, the, 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 the natural uh, progression should be in 2027 for something completely different to come. And the only thing completely different you can imagine coming constellation of forces in French politics would be Marine Le Pen becoming president. I don't think she will be president. Though. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I'm something of a minority now in that, but I, I think whether he thought it this through way or not, uh, de Gaulle, when he created the, the, the present pattern of, 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 the, of the two round presidential system and all of that, which was designed for the whole old center left, center right dichotomy, it does make it very difficult uh, all the same for Marine Le Pen to win because she certainly will get in the second round next time, but she'll be in the second round against probably another centrist candidate. Can't be Macron, he can't run again. It's difficult to see the left producing a candidate strong enough to get in the second round with her. If you did get uh, a second round of Marine Le Pen against some radical candidate that left like Mélenchon, <laughs> that would be uh, completely uncharted waters, you know. Uh, who would win then? Actually, it's possible that Marine Le Pen could win then. If it's Marine Le Pen against Edouard Philippe, uh, the former Macron Prime Minister, who is the most popular politician in France still and will almost certainly try and run 27, or if it's uh, Bruno Le Maire, the present finance minister, who also fences his chances, both people from the centre-right, from the moderate centre-right, whereas Macron was nominally from the moderate centre-left. If one of those emerges as a strongish candidate, would almost certainly be in the second round against Le Pen. I don't see the left voting in such numbers or abstaining in such numbers uh, that Le Pen could win. If Macron was running again, that might be different. But, I, you know, I, I have a sense that a lot can happen in the next four years, but I think that... So you have this collision of two forces. You know, the French want to have something different. They don't want to have a Macron too uh, next time. Philippe and Le Maire, even though they're sort of, you know, quite different characters that would be seen as, as a continuation of Macronism in a way. Um, but uh, it's very difficult for Marine Le Pen, I think, to, to, to win next time. And what is your overall sense, John, about the stability of the Fifth Republic? Because it's it, it strikes me you, you you mentioned that Mélenchon was like the one candidate who proposed a sit a sixth. I mean, do, do you think, you know, briefly, that there is a, a genuine threat to the Fifth Republic that that something new, you know, a new formulation of power between the state and, and the people is possible and we don't talk about that enough. I, I think that I mean, what I said before about how many young people were shocked to find what the Fifth Republic was, you know, um, uh, because of the, the row of pension reform and, and the way Macron shoved, shoved it through uh, perfectly constitutionally, but using those emergency powers. Um, will there is pressure for, for it to change, and you know it isn't unchanged. A lot of things have changed. For instance, there used to be a seven-year presidential term that was shifted by Chirac to be a five-year term, and many people uh, that was a mistake. But that's actually 
has since diminished the, the sense of separateness of the presidency and has made the president just a, a kind of super prime minister. And it's one reason why the presidential office has lost its aura uh, because of that. People argue that. Uh, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think it's partly the world we now live in, you know, that things that the, the pe people on pinnacles don't survive anymore in the way they used to, you know, and I think France is not any exception to that but so yes i think there will be changes to the fifth republic but the ch changes uh, whether whether it will be abandoned for a complete again for a parliamentary system or like gilet jaune wanted a system where government was all run by people for their laptops on their kitchen tables by referendums every day gilet jaune's had a very uh, interesting idea the government said she got two of them to go on on one thing was difficult uh, so um no I, I think the fifth republic will continue indefinitely frankly i think it's uh, it's um it's kind of uh, ingrained in the way the French think. I think most French politicians, Mélenchon is an exception, like the idea of, of there being a sort of strong presidency and, and you know, the, the weakness of the parliament, the party system at the moment also uh, is caused by what's happening in the Fifth Republic, but also encourages it to remain. You know, the sort of Fifth Republic is, was partly about the on providential, you know, the sort of big man who could sort of uh, bestride France, which de Gaulle was, and uh, Macron may not be that man. No, no who is that man? <laughs> I think that that's really interesting, though, John, because that would suggest that actually, and I, I kind of do think this, that kind of built into the French Fifth Republic is a kind of bias towards the cult of personality. Mm. And that's what de Gaulle created, uh, and that he sort of pulled that off. And then you kind of had a more routine party system that kind of emerged post De Gaulle, but you could then tell the story of the last 10 years or so, perhaps, of the way in which that that broke down and, and that what Macron injected back into it was back the cult of personality, which interestingly, Le Pen kind of matches too. So then that does raise a question, though, about whether this new system version of the French Fifth Republic can, can, can go on without actually the, the person opposing Le Pen next time also having at least aspiring to act in that cult of personality space that might push strangely somewhere in a different direction than just one of Macron's ministers. But that, I mean, it seems to me, it seems to me that that's part of the, the complication of what's going on here. No, I mean, I think that's a very reasonable point. I mean, you know, four years out from Macron's first win in 2017, you know, no one had heard of Macron in 2013. He was just a junior person, wasn't even financed at that stage. He was an economics advisor to, to um, Hollande, you know, who'd come out of banks and the French uh, elite education system and so on. And he was a very young man. Um, so who knows who might emerge between between now and 2027? There is a kind of vacuum there to be filled. That's true. I don't moment see who it possibly could be, but then that's the nature of the question you ask. It could be something completely different and unusual. That's that's been absolutely fascinating, John. I mean, it sounds to me like as long as the Fifth Republic will carry on in its present form or, or something similar, then we're going to see street protests of the sort of the sort we've seen over the past. 20 years because it's not really about um economic performance it's about much deeper things and you've been absolutely fantastic at bringing those to light so i really appreciate it john oh it's been a great pleasure it's been very interesting thanks very much john planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.